0: Good morning and welcome to this local production of Divine Mercy Radio. I am Bill Gent and our program is called Treasures of Faith. It's a beautiful Friday morning on the Space and Treasure Coast and this is Apologetics Friday. And I'm very blessed to have two of our very faithful priests here in the studio with me, Father Jeremiah and Father Emmanuel. Welcome, gentlemen, to our Apologetics Friday. Thanks for having us, Bill. Good to be here.
1: Thanks for having us, Bill. We're happy to be here. Thank you, listeners, for joining us.
0: We want to invite our listeners uh, to call in if they have a question that they would like to pose uh, to our two priests. We're, they're right here in the studio with me. And we certainly would like you to participate in this program. This is a local production of Divine Mercy Radio. So, this is your opportunity to ask that question. And I want to give you the phone number if you'd like to call in. The number is 321-757-7705. 321-757-7705. So we would love to hear from you. But as we're waiting, guys, for uh, someone to give us a call, I got a question here that I thought we could begin with uh, today on Apologetics Friday, and the question is this, what is the difference between ecumenical councils called by popes or emperors and other meetings called by the pope-like synods?
2: Okay, so yeah, there, there there are various ways that the church comes together in order to discuss matters pertinent to doctrine, pertinent to ecclesial life. And so the first time we see this, for example, is in Acts 15, chapter 15, where there is a dispute about uh, what Jewish laws uh, Christians are still to keep. And so peter uh the Peter, the one whom Jesus built the rock built the church on the rock, calls this council and is presided over by the Bishop of of Jerusalem but it, it is called by Peter uh, in which uh, they discuss and they determine uh, what is to be the Christian discipline, and when the response is made, uh it said it, it is the Holy Spirit and us who make this decision, so even from the very beginning of the church's days. It's understood that when the bishops of the church, at that time the apostles and their successors, come together uh, through the ministry of Peter uh, and they have the sense of faith and they address a question that's of dispute, uh, that they come up for the whole church with the appropriate response. And so as the church goes on, uh, we have various gatherings of bodies of bishops discussing matters that deal with ecclesiastical life and doctrine. And some of those are local synods. Uh, synod is just a Greek word that means assembly or gathering. And it might touch on something in that region. So you you have a patriarch and you have all of his bishops under him. And there might be something affecting Asia Minor or there might be something affecting Palestine. Or there might be something affecting, uh, you know, the area of, of, of France and Normandy. And so they come together and they address it. And so that's a synod. Uh, of of bishops and it's really advisory in nature, or it establishes local canon law, or something like that. Uh, we we know the American Synod today as the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, right? We give it a big long fancy name, but it's a Synod of Bishops. But when the Pope convenes, or in the early church, sometimes the Emperor would convene, and it would be uh, confirmed by the Pope. All of the bishops of the church. Uh, to come together for some dire matter. Then we call this an ecumenical council. And an ecumenical council comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which literally means household management. Uh, It's where we get the English word economy uh, from, for example. So the ecumenical council, the whole household, the whole body of bishops comes together uh, with the successor of St. Peter uh, to discern uh, and determine what is the pathway forward for the church. So after Acts 15... There were lots of local synods of bishops dealing with uh, local issues in local churches. Uh, But there arose a heretic uh, by the name of Arius. You know, and Arius denied basically the divinity of Jesus. And after the legalization of Christianity by Emperor Constantine in 312 AD, uh, this doctrine began to divide the church and therefore divide the empire. So Constantine... Uh, asked to convene the Council of Nicaea in 325, and the Pope confirmed the convening of that council, and they came together, and the bishops uh, reaffirmed the full humanity and full divinity of Christ in what we call the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ, uh, and promulgated definitively and infallibly uh, that doctrine. Uh, so important was it that from that point on, in all of the churches, the creed of that council is recited at at minimum, every Sunday Mass or Divine Liturgy? I think what people get confused about, Fathers, is
0: that at times they think that it's the Pope that makes the decision. And and certainly we can discuss that in terms of infallible teaching. But some people have this misconception that the Holy Spirit does invite a collegiality of the leaders of the Church, and the Spirit works through the body, so to speak, uh, in order to advance uh, doctrine or to perhaps uh, counter heresy, whatever the case may be. But I think a lot of people sort of think, well, it's the Pope. He makes all the decisions, and the bishops just kind of hang around him and look pretty or whatever the case may be. But there really is a
2: collegiality, and, and that comes from the early Church, Yes, of course it does. And so, I mean, you can, even, you can even see in the New Testament, right? So if we look at Jesus' statement to Peter in Matthew 16, uh, he says to Peter alone, uh, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then just a couple chapters later, with the body of the twelve together, uh, he says to them as a body. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so from the very early days uh, of the Church, it's understood that uh, the, the successor of Peter, uh, as as the presiding bishop over all the bishops of the world, as it were, uh, the bishop of Rome, uh, has this power uh, in himself, in the, in the ministry of that particular office. But it is to be exercised, uh, in most instances, as part of the wider College of Bishops, uh, just as it had been by the College of Apostles. And so most decisions in the life of the Church are are made by ecumenical councils uh, in terms of these major issues. Only twice have we had the Pope, uh, in an infallible way, uh, act definitively, and that uh, that was with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the doctrine of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, into heaven. Those two dogmas were uh, the Pope acting in his capacity as a successor of St. Peter to declare, by the power of that office, these doctrines to be infallible. Now, is it
0: uh, true that the Pope can be wrong? I mean, people say, well, the Pope is infallible. But what do we mean by infallibility? I mean, if the Pope just gets up one day and starts talking about, you know, I don't really think Jesus was the Son of God today— I mean is the pope infallible
2: with every statement that he makes? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He is his infallibility is in fact a very limited and even uh it is a it is a negative function. So in the sense that what I, what do I mean by negative? That he has this function to protect the faith from corruption. Right? So when corruption comes in, when false doctrine comes in, he can define something infallible in order to cut off that vein of thought that is leading to error. Uh, and there, there are strict requirements for him to do so in order for it to be infallible, right? So, so it has to be, uh, you know, of a significant doctrinal matter. He has to declare he is doing such, uh, and, and he has to intend to do it uh, as the successor of St. Peter, confirming the brethren in the faith uh, by his apostolic office. And again, that has only happened twice.
0: Is that what we mean by when he speaks from the chair? I've heard yes. that phrase before. Ex cathedra, yeah, yes. from the chair. From the chairs. So what is, and this certainly was uh, a big part of me being led by the Spirit to come back to the church some 20 years ago, is the idea that we do have a have a visible voice of authority, that... You know, when I was a pastor, you know, it was almost as if I could appeal to my superintendent. It would be kind of like a bishop. And oftentimes uh, that person, uh, I'll use an example, an end-of-life issue. Should this person uh, uh, be uh, open to a feeding tube? Uh, Should this person be taken off of life support, whatever the case may be? And my superintendent would say, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. So I really, as a pastor of an individual church, didn't have any real visible voice of authority. The question would be, well, just go look in the Bible. Well, there's no, there are no feeding tubes in the Bible. Uh, there is nothing about, uh, you know, the medical... Uh, end-of-life things that are applied today found in the scriptures. So it it became very confusing for me, but we have a visible voice of authority, and what's amazing, I started then reading some uh, Catholic authors on the subject of bioethics, which was very helpful to me, and God used that, Mm -hmm. as both of you know.
1: Yeah. What I would like to say uh, in the area of infallibility in line with what you are saying is, first of all, in biblical revelation, we're talking about truth revealed for salvation. That's what it's about. Not about truth about the tire of a car. Not about uh, what is cough. Not about historical matters as such uh, or cos- uh, cosmological issues. We're talking about what is the revealed truth for our salvation. That's the primary dimension of infallibility. So we're not saying if the Pope is an expert in geophysics, in oil exploration, and so on. We are speaking essentially of what will help us gain salvation. Mm. So in the area of faith and moral issues. That's the dimension more of uh, the infallibility issue. And uh, the teachings of the church are infallible. I would say all. The teachings. Why? Because the teachings are truth for salvation. Uh, like if you look at the Vatican II document, uh, there are 16 documents of the Second Vatican Council. Some are dogmatic constitution, some are pastoral constitution, some are decrees, some are declaration. So, like declaration, church can give opinion on issue. So that so like issue of how do you raise your child so on. How do you raise the area of um, uh, the teaching that we affect infallibility is that you raise your child for fear of God, for love of neighbor, for humility. In that dimension, it's infallible. But if you raise your child to play basketball or volleyball or tennis, that's not about infallibility. So it has to come to the area of what you do for your salvation. So uh, regarding the teachings of the church, I will say all are infallible. Jesus is Lord, it's an infallible statement. There is only one church founded by Jesus, it's an infallible statement. That's, that's, that's the truth. That God wants us to honor the Blessed Virgin Mary, it's an infallible statement, unless one does understand the biblical dimension. So as long as the Pope is teaching, the teaching of Christ, his teaching infallibly. But a pope, can a pope deviate from teaching of Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. Through human weakness. Not because God didn't supply the grace. Because the whole foundation of infallibility, like Father Jeroboam mentioned, we come from the dimension of what happened in Caesarea So Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter receives special revelation. Revelation. God's revelation cannot be in error. So you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's an infallible statement. Will everybody in the world accept it as infallible? No. But it's infallible all the same. Whether they believe or accept or not. That's the way it's structured by God himself. And also, like... Um, uh, in Acts or the Apostles, uh, chapter 15, 28, he says, it has been decided by the Holy Spirit and us. Mm. Holy Spirit and us. That is infallibility. Mm. The, the Apostles understood their definition at that council, the first council in Jerusalem, as infallible. Because invoking the Spirit into what they are doing, which Jesus caused, The spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. So it cannot but be infallible. So it has been decided by the Holy Spirit and us. So the question should believers be circumcised, new converts to Christianity be circumcised or not? The apostles decided that there is circumcision made without hands. So the one in the flesh, according to the law, is now obsolete in terms of what you do to gain salvation. Accordingly, they said the Holy Spirit was the one who led them in that way. So such definition, even if some people may disagree, is absolutely infallible.
0: You know, Acts chapter 15, there's a very interesting interplay between Paul and Peter Mm -hmm and the Bishop of Jerusalem, which would have been James. And it's kind of interesting that it appears that Paul was making his argument. Mm -hmm. There were those who were countering that argument. And then it it appears in the Scripture that Peter, after listening to it all, he stands up and makes the declaration Mm -hmm. uh, really representing uh, the Spirit there. And then we discover James, the bishop of the city of Jerusalem. He begins to carry out that declaration that was made by Peter. So you really see very early on, uh, really, the emergence of Peter as the first pope. And we see the interplay that took place between Paul, Peter, and James, that first bishop in Jerusalem. It's kind of an interesting thing to see so very early on.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. You see, um, in, the, in the rapport the apostles had, the collegiality that they had, is all about the Spirit guiding them step by step. You see, like when we talk about development of doctrine, the apostles had to wrestle with a lot of all Jesus gave them. Mm. Mm. Christ even told them, I have many more things to tell you You cannot handle it now. Mm -hmm. But when the Spirit comes, he will guide you. So the first example of the Spirit guiding them was at Acts 15 Mm -hmm. in a collegial dimension. And they continued to evolve and grow. That is why for us in the Catholic Church, revelation of God continued until the death of the last apostle. So, and after that time, we don't believe in any new revelation but only that we are now in the stage of unpacking the depths of all that has been revealed. So that's where we are now. So, like, looking at infallibility, you see, I wish our separated brethren, Protestants and Evangelicals, will accept the teaching of the church on infallibility. It is absolutely important. For instance, the one Father Jeremiah cited, Matthew 16. Jesus saying to Peter, whatever you bind on earth, I bound in heaven. Whatever. Will Jesus bound falsehood? Will Jesus approve falsehood in heaven? That is Jesus giving guarantee mm. of infallibility mm. Mm. and he will never abandon the church. Mm. So, so then, as we mentioned already, Acts 28 sorry, uh, uh, Acts 15 28. It has been decided by the Holy Spirit and us to stand on this ground that this is what we are going to do, this is the truth. Mm. That is a statement of infallibility. The apostles appealing to the spirit of truth in making a decision shows that decision is the will of God, and that is what we help in salvation of souls so in that way it is absolutely important in my opinion that our separated brethren really begin to accept the teaching of the scripture and of the church on infallibility that everybody will agree before we say yes it's infallible it's not biblical for instance look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 6-7 to St. Paul saying, There is one God the Father, from whom all things came, all things exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we exist and are saved. And he added in verse 7: However, not all possess this knowledge. Mm-hmm. The mere fat people disagree with us, object, contest against the teachings of the church doesn't does make it as if it's everybody, matter of opinion, relativism. No. The word of God is true whether people accept it or do not accept it. Even in Christ's own time, Christ's teaching, many didn't accept his teaching. Mm-hmm. So, And I like Jesus, and I like to follow his path when he says to the samaritan woman for instance you believe what you do not know we we believe what we know for salvation is from the jews
0: well i want to follow i want to follow up on that father emmanuel I want to remind our listeners you're listening to Treasures of Faith and this is Apologetics Friday and we're certainly inviting our listeners to call in if they would like. The phone number is 321 we're having too good of a time here. 3217577705321757 7705 you know uh, we're we're talking really about the authority of the church and gentlemen you know that we live in a culture that doesn't trust authority so you will hear people say well you know jesus you know he spent about three three and a half years walking around telling stories he really didn't establish a lot of rules and regulations, and he didn't seem to be focused on doctrine or whatever the case may be. So how do we as Catholics, how do we address that kind of thinking that is so prevalent in our culture today?
2: Yeah, it's difficult. You know, it's difficult to, you know, when you, when you grow up uh, with, with, in a culture where there, especially with each successive generation, a growing angst against authority— Um, you know, it it is difficult to have an argument by authority. And in fact, philosophically speaking, you know, when when you look at rhetoric, uh, the, the weakest form of argument, even in rhetoric is the argument from authority. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so so you combine those two and it's very Mm -hmm. difficult, but I, but I think, uh, you know the beginning of a reflection is is and one that I often lead people on is is the same reflection that Aristotle went on mm. uh, is to ask the question uh, w- what do I have now that I gave myself right and the question is nothing did I give myself life no I can't can I sustain my life so we follow we follow this chain reaction back to for Aristotle it was the it was a philosophical reflection back to the prime mover the principal cause uh you know the first um and that's what the word authority means exousia in greek exousia um so so it's this idea that comes out of right and and by idea it's it, it's a it's a creative word mm. uh, that comes out of and establishes something from itself uh and and i i think that's that's the beginning place uh and and i like to begin with philosophy instead of religion uh because People will tend to want to; uh, they'll tend to think about it more and not put you off straight away if you can take them on a logical argument backward. That's at least what I found. It's in my that personal. argument
0: of contingency, yes, right? The argument you know, of the, contingency. the argument yep. of contingency and, and an extrinsic God. He he doesn't rely upon anyone or anything. Right. Mm-hmm. He is being itself. Yep. You know, and that's the beauty of the Catholic faith is we have answers to these kinds of very thought-provoking questions, but we live in a culture today where people aren't even asking the right questions anymore. That's right. You know, everything is kind of based upon what I think because we've embraced this kind of rugged individualism, rabid individualism today, which really militates against really submitting to any kind of authority.
1: Right. And uh, I would say also the challenge of uh, Protestantism and uh, Pentecostalism uh, Um, uh, did a lot of harm in that area because, so to speak, the Christian peoples are not united. Mm. So a house divided against itself, how can we project a common image or common doctrine Mm. when in the doctrines within Mm. the ecclesial communities we're already divided? So we're not confusing the world. Mm. That is why Vatican II says... uh, in uh, the document on ecumenism, Unitatis Rintegratio, that the division uh, scandalizes the world and uh, damages the Holy cause of preaching the good news to all creation. So we are part of the problem of confusing the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think
2: too, some strands even of our Protestant brothers and sisters that, are, that we c- collectively bunch up in the term fundamentalism you know fundamentalism, fundamentalism is is not reasonable, and oftentimes it is utterly ridiculous mm-hmm. uh, at the same time. the zeal of our brothers and sisters who are fundamentalists mm-hmm. give them uh, perhaps a louder voice uh, than the what we used to call the frozen chosen right and so uh, and so what the world often sees and what especially in our in the great American experiment uh, what what they often hear are fundamentalistic evangelicals. Uh, who declare propositions that that absolutely do not mesh with science or reason, or you know when, when people are are purporting uh, something as silly as a flat earth theory or or people are trying to to show in spite of the scientific data uh, that dinosaurs and men walked together in order to justify uh, creation six thousand years ago. Uh, all of these sorts of things. Or, or you know, one of, one of my favorite ones was, uh, you know, the discrepancy in the, in the way that Judas dies in the mm-hmm. uh, gospel accounts. So in, in one gospel, Judas dies by hanging himself. In the other gospel, he jumps off a cliff. Right. And so, you know, when I was Pentecostal, we had it covered. Judas went running. <laughs> he jumped off that cliff. His collar got caught on a tree <laughs> growing outside of the cliff, mm-hmm. and he hung himself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But that sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? And. <laughs>
0: Well, I think in many ways, uh, I know when I was uh, an evangelical, and what I have discovered over time is that when we as evangelicals took the gospel and we perhaps overly simplified it, you know, in the sense of we didn't have to embrace philosophy, we didn't have to embrace the theology of the church that developed over 2,000 years, that oversimplification of the gospel really kind of armed the common person to go out and spread the gospel. You know, as lacking as it is, uh, it does enable the common person. And I think what I hear from Catholic people is that I'm afraid to go out and represent my faith because I just don't feel as if I'm well informed enough about my faith to answer a lot of these uh you know uh, very valid questions
2: right and we, and we definitely need to do a better job at equipping our people for evangelization and at the same time you know it, it is it is not the hyper individualism of 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 the of the protestant experience right this is an ecclesial body the body of Christ and and, and there are Family customs and traditions there 's initiation into the family it doesn't it, do, it 's not a mcdonald 's gospel right it 's not it 's not going through a drive through and getting what you want when you want it it 's an initiation into mystery this is the triune the, the the triune majesty of Almighty God inviting you into mystery and that doesn 't happen instantaneously all at once uh, there's not an immediate gratification of the senses and the desires when one approaches the tremendous majesty of Almighty God. And so, you know, there's, there's something of this hyper-individualism that leads to a fast-food experience of religion and touches briefly on, on, on our need for religion, but it keeps it at surface level for the most part, mm. uh, as opposed to being a catalyst and a long catalyst— of diving into the mystery of God, which is what God really desires in this love relationship with our souls. So
0: being members of the body of Christ, being faithful Catholics, as members of this ecclesial body, there is safety in the sense that we know that we are rooted in the truth, and we ought to become more familiar with that truth. And hopefully that's what our listeners are gaining from actually listening to this program Bob, do we have someone on the radio? we have someone on the phone with us? Hello. Hey, how are you? What's your name? My name is Rose. I'm from Rockledge. Hey, Rose from Rockledge. Thanks for calling in. What's your question for Father Jeremiah and Father Emmanuel today? Thank you for taking my call. Um, My question is that the uh, gospel was written over 100 years after Christ's resurrection, How can we determine the accuracy of what was written since it was so long after
1: his resurrection?
2: Hey, Rose, thanks for calling in. Uh, I'll answer part of that, and Father Emmanuel will answer part of that. Um, The oldest Gospel is the Gospel of John, and and, uh, scholars believe that Gospel was completed somewhere between 70 and 90 A.D. Um, The earliest Gospel, most scholars concur, is the Gospel of Mark. And that would have been completed before 60 A.D. Uh, and then the other two Gospels somewhere uh, between 60 and 70 A.D. Uh, so, so we're not looking at 100 years out, uh, but we, we are looking at, you know, 20 to 30 years out. Um, I would say in terms of the veracity of the scriptures, uh, something that is very prevalent in the ancient world in terms of the transmission of knowledge and information, uh, oral tradition— the oral passing on of, of, of one's history, of one's genealogy, uh, of one's cultural identity was sacrosanct in the ancient world. I mentioned it a couple, a couple uh, weeks ago that uh, paper was expensive and not a lot of people could read and write. And so what would happen in cultures are people were set aside to literally memorize these things and to hand them on. And the example that I used, apart from religion, was the Homeric epics, right? So the Iliad and the Odyssey. Those Mm -hmm. were recited at court for a period of 300 years or more before they were ever committed to writing. But when we did commit them to writing, we had transcripts of court records that would copy paragraphs or whatnot during oral transmission. And what we found was absolutely amazing. Three to 400 years later, when we have a full written copy of the Iliad and the Odyssey, all of those court records from two, three, 400 years previous all matched up word for word, Mm. syntax for syntax. That's how sacrosanct oral tradition was in the ancient world. And so we have that going into play uh, with the formation of the Gospels. The formation of the Gospels began by people experiencing the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, by witnessing his miracles, by hearing what he taught, uh, by being witnesses to the resurrection in the the absolute life-changing moment that the resurrection is in the history of the world. They pass these stories on and preaching, and finally these apostolic men— those entrusted by Jesus with the ministry of the church, uh, commit them uh, to written form for the sake of their individual churches. Uh, and so uh, we, we, can, we can be, given the nature of the way the ancient world works, we can be highly confident of the accuracy and veracity of the Gospels, uh, though they are written from theological perspectives. So yeah, that's how I would address that. And then, that's
0: amazing, Father, because you're talking about people who are memorizing you know, uh, many words, many sentences, many paragraphs. Today, we barely remember our own phone numbers. And yet, in that culture, uh, certainly they took that very, very seriously and handed down those traditions. They took great care to protect the veracity of them, as you just mentioned. Father Emmanuel, you wanted to add something. Yes,
1: thank you, Rose, for your question. Uh, Mm -hmm. What I will say, in addition to what Fr. Jeremiah already explained, is that in uh, biblical revelation, many of the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. Many of the episodes also eyewitnesses and also by their secondary witnesses. So uh, uh, even if you told me something 40 years ago, I can remember my discussion with you. You told me something 10 years ago. I can remember my discussion. Because it's not just like a book. It's about experience we're talking about. Their encounter with Jesus. They live with Jesus. He discipled them. They ate with him. He remained with them. He taught them. And there was like internship. He would send them out like Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. He would send them out. They will go and evangelize, they will bring back word to him, He will correct their anomalies and send them back again. So they grew increasingly. Like if you look at First uh, John chapter one, one to five, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have looked upon, what we have touched, is what we proclaim to you. See, an eyewitness is telling you about his own experience of Jesus. So, and uh, when you look at scripture, it was written at a time when those who could have contradicted it, uh, contradicted it were alive. Like St. Paul, will say to us, for instance, in uh, Acts uh, of the Apostles, uh, um, uh, 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 I beg your pardon, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, saying that, I taught you what I, have taught, I was taught myself. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, rose on the third day, that all that he was saying was what many who were still alive could confirm. Many who were still alive. That is why people who were alive at the time didn't contradict any of the testimonies in Scripture. There is no book dating to that first century times that contradicts what we see in the Scripture. That is why we cannot come... After 2,000 years, and begin to contradict what people who lived then didn't contradict. Just like we say, President Trump is American president in 2018. And, and we are here, we have seen it, and maybe we we'll write about it. Then people will come about 20, uh, 200 years from now and begin to wonder if Trump even existed. So that's what we mean. Thank you for your question.
0: You're listening to Treasures of Faith, and this is Apologetics Friday. I'm here in the studio with Father Jeremiah and Father Emmanuel. I want to remind our listeners of our wonderful sponsors. Uh, Margarita Pacoraro is a realtor with Century 21 Ocean, and Margarita can certainly address your real estate needs. So we're hoping that you will. Uh, Find out about Margarita and the great service that she can offer you. Also, uh, this program is also supported by Indian River Networks, providing comprehensive IT services for clients ranging in size from five to over a thousand employees. They specialize in cloud services and solve complex technology challenges. So they, Indian River Networks, they will allow you to focus on your business, not on your IT. They're located, by the way, in India Atlantic. You can reach them at three two one five seven four zero four five three or Networks dot com. Well, do we have uh, another call? Okay. Well, uh, while we're waiting here for another call, I thought we could. Oh, we do have someone. We have someone on the line. Hello, who am I speaking to? This is Linda. Hi, Linda. How are you? Welcome to Treasures of Faith and Apologetics Friday. What's your question today?
1: Yeah, I've been asked a lot by other friends that um, why women are not permitted to be priests.
0: Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, that's one that perhaps we ought to address. Father Jeremiah, I want to take a. We'll, we'll let you swing at that one. Okay, so
2: thanks. (laughs) So so basically it comes down uh, to one simple thing, the will of the Lord. So the establishment of the priesthood is twofold. It is firstly the establishment of the twelve. And those are the twelve apostles that Jesus sets aside from all of the disciples for the sake of establishing the new Israel, for the sake of the governance of Holy Church. Uh, And he makes them uh, for the church, likened unto the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he chooses them. And he sets them apart for ministry, the ministry of binding and loosing. We see at the end of John's gospel, the ministry of the forgiveness of sins. Uh, And then uh, finally, uh, we see at the Last Supper that Jesus sets them apart uh, for the ministry of the Eucharist. Uh, He gives them the command, as often as you do this, do this in memory of me. And so it is those twelve who receive from the Lord directly by divine will. Remember, remember, Jesus, Jesus isn't just some nice rabbi in in Galilee. Right? Jesus, Jesus is the second person of the Blessed Trinity wedded to our human nature. So the will of God is made manifest in His every word, and He chooses these twelve to be the ministers of reconciliation and Eucharist, what 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 we now come to call the sacrament of Holy Orders. Uh, and He did not by His divine will. Uh, choose um, choose women to do this. In fact, in that room that night, is the only human that could legitimately say, "This is my body. This is my blood," and that's the Blessed Virgin Mary, presumably there. And he did not uh, give to her this ministry. And so that that is the first and most pr- principal argument is is that the Lord did not will it nor intend it, uh, and we are not free. Uh, based on social norms or mores uh, to change the divine will. Uh, Secondarily, uh, Holy Orders exists as an icon, uh, as a participation in the way that God redeems us through Christ. Uh, And it is, as theologians call, by the scandal of particularity, uh, Jesus was born uh, as a male in the first century in Palestine. And so uh, the human nature that he wedded with was that, and a priest as his icon uh, matches in this way who Jesus is. And the third reason is, of course, symbolic. Jesus is, is in symbology, the heavenly bridegroom to the Church, uh, which we often refer to as, as the Bride of Christ, right? So even in the symbol of the priest or the bishop presiding over the Eucharistic assembly, over the Church in, in, this, in this holiest of all prayers, it is Christ the Bridegroom who is leading the Church, the Bride, Home to heaven. And so those are, those are the three uh, top reasons uh, why the Church uh, cannot, uh, of her own power, uh, ordain women to holy orders. Is that helpful to you, Linda? Yes,
0: thank you. You know, one of the, the other things that I think we're confronting in our culture today is that uh, we have this uh, real um, emphasis upon equality. You know, everything has to be equal and you know we don't want to distinguish between and it's kind of interesting that um, for many years now I think the culture has been trying to tell us that men and women are the same and yet we all know by experience they're absolutely not the same and so in the same way that they're they're different uh, we in the culture want to make them the same and I, I think we equate rank with value isn't that true father emmanuel i mean we think that if someone i mean you guys are parish priests it's not as if the bishop is more he has more responsibility than you but you certainly are the same in essence so to speak we get into this argument about how women ought to be priests because they ought to be equal to men and we seem to be missing the point
1: the point um, is um the priesthood is not about um, uh, authority in the human perspective. It's a ministry of service, ministerial priesthood. It's about being servants. It's not even a job, uh, though it's made to look like job, like as if it's a professional church. It's not a job. It's a calling to ministry. And uh, if you look at, like, Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 13, says, Jesus had many disciples, men and women alike, and Jesus didn't discriminate against women. Christ didn't practice discrimination. In John 4, verse 34, he said, My food is to do the will of my Father. So, whatever Jesus did, we should trust him on this, that what he did was the will of the Father. We should give that to him. So, he wasn't playing according to cultural rules. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been falling out against the Pharisees and Sadducees, always uh, picking on him for breaking one law or another. So Christ wasn't politically correct or working according to social, social norms. No, he was simply telling us the will of the Father. And so for the church, what Jesus did and the apostles did, we have no right to change. That is what we mean by following sacred scripture and sacred tradition, not human tradition. So what we see from Protestants or Evangelicals is human tradition. It's not coming from the divine. So it's fashioned after worldly uh, socialism, democratic uh, government, or whatever earthly governments. But we are a a, a theocracy. As God promised, I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests, which is God's own dimension. That's what we follow. So, like Mary was the most qualified woman, undeniably, to be made a priest. I mean, ministerial priest. But we see Mary didn't function as ministerial priest. Was Jesus discriminating against his own mother? No. Absolutely not. Women were very close associates. Christ loved women, but but Christ wasn't discriminating against them. You see, many women are saints. St. Elizabeth of Hungary, St. Bridget, St. Mary Magdalene. But not every pope or every priest is a saint. So it's not about who is who. It's just about the will of God. It's Uh, funny
0: that the greatest of all saints is the Blessed Mother, And certainly we know she's a woman. So, uh, Linda, is that helpful to you?
1: Yes, that is. Thank you so
0: much. Well, thank you. Thank thank you for joining us, Linda. We appreciate it. Well, gentlemen, uh, we still have some time left. I've got another question here. And the question is this What exactly was Jesus referring to when he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law until all things have taken place. Uh, Gentlemen, how how do we understand this passage in lieu of what we've kind of been referring to, that people don't necessarily like uh, laws, They somehow think that Jesus came to get rid of all those laws, Mm -hmm. and now we can basically do whatever we want Mm -hmm. as long as we are loving. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, okay. Thank you, Father Jeremiah and my brother Bill. Yes, in this area, it's important to see the place of doctrine. Doctrines are laws, so to speak, that God is telling us his will. This is what you do, this is what you do not do. So in this context now of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, Christ is clearly showing us that he has come not to abolish, but to fulfill. The question is, what does he mean by not to abolish, but to fulfill? The issue here is that Christ has come to raise everything to a higher level. According to Aristotle, for any change to happen, because Christ represents change, something is retained, something is lost, something is added. What is retained? The true revelation that God really has given is retained. What is lost? Whatever aberrations to that true relationship, true revelation, will be lost. What is added? Jesus bringing it to a higher level. A progression. So we're not just operating at the level of the Old Testament. There's a progression. So each time you read the Bible, read with an angle of elevation. Don't read it flat. So certain things you see in the Old Testament, you have to ask yourself, was that the way it's maintained in the new? Or is it consistent in the new? Or is there a progression over it? I will give an example, like marriage. Marriage. In the Old Testament, they began with monogamy. Then after that, they entered into polygamy, and so on. Then polygamy now looked as if it were God's own concept. And Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, clarified that, telling them, From the beginning, he who made them made them male and female. So one man goes to one woman. And they asked him how. Why did Moses allow us to practice many wives or even divorce our wives and so on and marry someone else? Jesus clarified, saying, for your hardness of heart. Moses allowed that. But from the beginning, it was not so. So when Christ is saying, I have not come to abolish, I have come to fulfill, he wasn't endorsing everything about the old. No, He was only endorsing what the Father revealed and leading us to a higher level of the practice. Like in the Old Testament, they believed you cannot eat meat of strangled animals. They believed it. You can't eat meat of strangled animals. But in the New, we see Jesus told us what you eat cannot defile you. It's what you do. So the statement does not mean Christ endorsed everything in the Old that Christ endorsed what the Father truly revealed, which they had, as it were, uh, gotten uh, confused and uh, 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 polluted. He purified it and raised it to a higher level. Just like in the Old Testament, there was marriage. In the New Testament, marriage. But now, marriage is not just at the level of the old. It's now sacramental marriage in the context that it now symbolizes Christ's love for his church, Christ's relationship for his church. That is raising it to a higher level. Thank you.
0: Do you think that, um, fathers, when we, when we talk about our, our current culture and people's understanding of love, I mean, Jesus is basically telling us that love, is the way to fulfill the law, and he's talking about genuine love. Could it be that our misunderstanding about what love is really all about is what causes so much confusion when it comes to these aspects of of the natural law, let alone the Ten Commandments?
2: Yeah, I think so. You know, uh, we we get our love uh, clawing. We get our notion of love as popular culture clawingly. Uh, from a, a sentimental Valentine's Day culture, from our Hallmark cards, uh, from the chick flicks we watch to uh, the nauseating hours spent in front of the Hallmark channel uh, on the saccharine, uh, these saccharine love stories and things that come out. And, you know, it's all, it's all all well and good, but it's it doesn't really get at the heart of love. Love is not an emotion and love is not a feeling Love is an act of the will uh, that is predicated upon the intellect seeing the truth. And so Aristotle would define love in this way and confirmed by St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, as he writes the Summa Theologiae, uh, this is the definition of love. To will the good of the other for the other's own sake without expectation of return and without counting the cost. Well, what is the good of the other? Finally, finally the good of the other is to, is to have one's life ordered to God uh, and to have one's life on the trajectory of God and at the, at the end of it to behold God according to our nature as he is. That is the good uh, th- that is our greatest good. And to get there is a pathway forward. Right? So Aristotle goes on to say, and the Christian tradition continues to affirm, that if man is to live life well, man will live with his end, his destiny, his telos, the final achievement of that good, in mind. And that telos, that end, that final achievement of that good, will be the lens through which he orders every action and every decision in this life. And that is going to mean yeses and noes. That is going to mean steps forward and steps aside to avoid obstacles. And so that necessitates law or Torah, right? Torah means instruction or guideposts in Hebrew. Uh, Any relationship, if you think about it in terms of any relationship, when I establish a relationship with you and we love each other as friends, as spouses, (coughs) as subordinates or parents, whatever it is, there are things that I do that build that relationship There are things that I don't do, so I don't hurt that relationship. There are things that I can do that wound that relationship, and there are things that I can do that destroys that relationship. And all of those factors come into uh, building that relationship that's healthy. There are do's and don'ts with your spouse. There are do's and don'ts with your children. There are do's and don'ts with your friends. There are do's and don'ts in the way that you encounter the people around you in your ordinary world. Those are yeses and nos. Those are Those are, if we want to get down to biblical languages, those are law and Torah, and they either build relationship or they detract from relationship. You know, perhaps as Christian people, you know, we'll be
0: sitting in mass or for our separated brothers and sisters are sitting in a worship service or something, and they hear the words of Jesus about love one another, Mm -hmm. they already have this preconceived notion of what love is and from what you just shared father jeremiah it's it's a false perception mm-hmm. of what love is and that's mm-hmm. perhaps where we're really struggling right. in our own culture today we don't know it's like uh, saint john paul the great said um he said love is total self-donation mm-hmm. it's not about what you get it's what you choose to give and of course jesus christ was the embodiment of that
1: Because in our world today, it's all about me, myself, and I. And uh, not to denigrate uh, any discipline, sometimes uh, some psychologists lead us along that line about it's okay for you, what makes you happy, what fulfills you, and so on. But it's not the real happiness that flows from faith we're talking about now. It's uh, happiness from secular humanism. So the happiness we want or the righteousness we want, the kind of love that we want is the one that flows from above, the one that comes through faith in Jesus and so on. And that uh, relationship of love uh, that we have with God is also about the law. And so when we talk about loving God, Christ says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So, So it's very important that we see that we don't take the love out of the question of the commandments. It's total. So if I love God, I have to love my neighbor. So th- that is the way Christ uh, wants us to live. Uh, and that is why even uh, the one you mentioned about uh, Christ saying, don't think I've come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. It's important our Protestant brethren who sometimes say, oh, faith alone. You don't need law. You don't need works. I don't know how they read these passages, very, very frankly. Because Jesus did not abolish. Christ even tightened the belt. Uh, p- many people think that the Old Testament was very rigoristic, legalistic, and so on. The New, for me, is more rigorous than the Old, unless we're not reading it correctly. In the Old, to commit adultery, it's simply that you perform a physical action with someone. But in the new, only to look lustfully. Are you kidding me? So can you see? In the old, mm. you have to physically kill someone. Mm-hmm. Thou shall not kill. In the new, just name-calling. You call Raka. You, oh-oh. So can you, you call fool. Oh-oh. So you can see it's, it's tightened. In the old... You could divorce and remarry as you will and so on. Okay. In the, in the new, if you divorce your wife and marry another, you commit adultery. So which is more stringent? I would say the New Testament is more rigorous than the new. But in the new, the spirit is also at work. So It's not just only about law. God gives us the enablement of the spirit to do it. Hence, by grace, we are saved. Because you know,
0: Father, you mentioned an elevation of understanding, and that's that's exactly what you're referring to. So, So just to be clear, when you get into the New Testament then, even beyond the Gospels, you know, Paul seems to reinforce the idea of the commandments, I know, in the book of Romans. But it's just the idea, too often people think, well, you know, Jesus really set aside the Old Testament completely because... He says he's the fulfillment, but they misunderstand fulfillment. They think it just eradicates the Ten Commandments, you know, in lieu of, well, just love everybody. And then we wonder why the culture continues to degenerate, because we're not understanding these very words that we're addressing this morning.
1: Yes, correct. Just like Jesus loved everybody. And Jesus came to, so, uh, someone came to Jesus, like, uh, or brought, was brought to Jesus, the adulterous woman. Did Jesus love her, for instance? Yes. With all her limitations, even her sin of adultery, caught in the act, she loved her. But has anyone condemned you? Neither do I. Go, but don't do it again. Mm. So Christ didn't say, go, it's fine. Dispensing the law. The law of thou shall not commit adultery remains in dust while Jesus was loving the woman. So that's the true spirit of love. So love does not mean trash God's word, as the modern culture wants it.
0: Probably important for us to always remain open to be challenged by that Sermon on the Mount. When I read Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, I have to often ask myself, What is it about this that we don't get? You know, it so challenges us, and I think it's become overly familiar sometimes to Christian people to talk about, well, I know the Sermon on the Mount, but in reality, are we really understanding it and putting it into practice?
2: Yeah, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is revolutionary. You know, in some ways, it's easy to follow simple dictates, but what Jesus does in bringing it to fulfillment, uh, you know, it's explained by most of the patristic writers that that the Torah— uh, and the prophets, they're signs. They're signs of something yet to come. They point somewhere. So, so they're physical things or physical actions or physical rules that are meant to point to the deeply spiritual that the Messiah will bring. And when he brings it, he takes these signs and he brings them to their true reality, uh, which is what Father Emmanuel was getting at. And and that alone is where we find our happiness.
0: Mm. Mm. that alone so well said yeah those words are very very challenging well gentlemen we only got about a minute left i'm going to ask that uh, perhaps one of you uh, would leave us with a blessing uh, before we conclude today on apologetics friday father you want to give us a blessing sure the lord be with you with your your spirit
2: may almighty god bless you the father the son and the holy spirit amen Amen.
0: go in peace Amen. Well, you've been listening to Treasures of Faith. This is Apologetics Friday, and I'm so very grateful for Father Jeremiah and Father Emmanuel being willing to take time out of their busy schedules to be with me and to be with all of you today. We want to thank you for joining us, and I want to remind you that next Friday we'll give you another opportunity to call in if you would like, and we'll give you the phone number next Friday. But I want to remind you of this local program. On Monday, I will be joined in the studio by Carolyn Dean from St. Helens Parish in Vero Beach, and then Father Tobin, who's the pastor of Ascension Catholic Parish here in Melbourne, he'll be joining us, and he'll be talking about his book on prayer. So we're looking forward to that interview. And we want to thank you all for joining us. Thank you so much for making this a part of your day, Have a wonderful weekend and enjoy the Sunday Mass and uh, blessings to you all this Lenten season. See you on Monday.